Hey, um, we continue in our study through the book of Acts. And last week we were in Acts chapter 6, and we looked at really the, the biblical basis for this concept we call every member ministry. The idea that if you're a Christian, you're a minister. And if you're a minister, you need to be involved in ministry. And ministry doesn't just have to be preaching a sermon or leading a song service or singing a special. Ministry uh, can, can and is many different things serving the Lord. I want to follow up on that today with uh, my favorite chapter from the book of Acts. We're going to jump all the way to Acts chapter 9 and we're going to look at the conversion of a man by the, known as, as Saul. And we're going to look at his background and look at this conversion as it takes place. I, do, I want to just remind you, we're skipping you know, the last half of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7 and all of chapter 8. Not because they are unimportant, but because we only have 14 weeks to do this series. So I would really challenge you to spend time, if you haven't already, filling in the gaps in your personal Bible reading. You will be blessed if you do that. But in order to, to study Acts chapter 9, we have to start by giving you some context, looking at the very end of chapter 7 and the very beginning of Acts chapter 8, setting the stage, talking about this man that, that Luke records uh, by the name of Saul. Who was this Saul? Let's look at the word of the Lord together, beginning with verse 58 of Acts chapter 7. Luke says, they dragged him out of the city and they began to stone Stephen. And meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul was there giving approval to his death. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. This, this Stephen that we talk about in chapter 7 was a disciple. Stephen was one of the seven that was chosen in Acts chapter 6 to care for the widows, the ministry of, of the tables as it's known as. And he proclaims boldly in the name of the Lord a message for all to hear in Acts chapter 7. And, and because of that bold message, he lost his life. And it's this man we know as Saul that, that is overseeing this persecution. Now, now, who was this Saul? We know at least five things about this Saul. Probably more, but I'm going to give you five this morning. First, Saul was a Jew. Deeply, deeply committed to the traditions of Judaism. Saul was the son of a Pharisee. And if, if you remember, we've talked about the Pharisees before when we studied Jesus and some of the parables of Jesus. Many times Jesus is lashing out at the Pharisees. The Pharisees were very tied into the Jewish legal system. They were known as people who were very legalistic, uh, very connected to the law. And Saul was the son of a Pharisee. Saul was a Roman citizen. And that doesn't really mean a lot for us this morning as we study Acts chapter 9. But as we get into the months of September and October, this, this fact that, that Saul was a Roman citizen is going to come into play. It's going to actually be a positive. It's going to be a benefit that, that Saul, who will become known as Paul, is a Roman citizen. Saul was a tent maker. That was his occupation. That will also come into play as we go through this study. And then finally, we know that Saul was from the city of Tarsus. 
This morning as we go through Acts chapter 9, a lot of scripture is going to be read. We're going to fly through about 31 verses of scripture. I'm going to give you four different characteristics of individuals that we see um, expounded upon here in Acts chapter 9. And as we do that, I want to have a question kind of floating through your minds. Through this whole message, I want this question just to kind of resonate in your mind. What is God calling you to do? When it comes to evangelism, when it comes to sharing faith, when it comes to connecting with people, whether they're your family, your friends, your co-workers, people that you know that are living outside the grace of God, what's God calling you to do? That's the question that, that I want you to think of as we go through this study this morning. So let's dive in. Four kingdom characteristics that I see in Acts chapter 9. Number one is this. I see the commitment of this man known as Saul. Let's read the word of the Lord together, beginning with Acts chapter 9. Luke records these words. He says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that is, the, the, the people following after Jesus Christ, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Verse 7, the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground. But when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Several things that I, I want us to understand here. Paul, Saul is still seeking to kill Christians. That, that's his mission. He's doing this because the persecution is taking place because he believes that he's doing God's will. The whole reason that Saul is doing the things that he is doing that's on your handout, you can write it in there, he thinks that he is doing God's will. Now, obviously, he was not. Obviously, he was hurting the cause of Christ. But understand, Saul is doing what he's doing, and he's doing it with the, the power and the authority that he's doing it, first and foremost, because he thinks he's doing God's will. We're going to see this idea of God's will cropping up all throughout Acts chapter 9. I'm convinced the Lord uses people like Saul. He, he wanted someone like Saul because he saw the commitment that Saul had. Even though Saul was on the wrong team, even though Saul was doing the wrong thing, I'm convinced the Lord saw his commitment. He saw how very intentional he was, how very strategic he was in doing the things he was doing. And it just reminds me, we can't say this enough, but the foremost qualification for discipleship, it's not giftedness. Many times we think if someone can speak, if someone can sing, if someone can build something, then they must be an awesome servant of the Lord. And the foremost qualification for discipleship is not giftedness, but it's faithfulness. And I'm convinced the Lord saw this persecutor by the name of Saul and he was intrigued. He was convinced that this is the man that's going to change the world for Christ. He's just playing on the wrong team. You know, some of the, the, the great leaders in our world today, 
didn't start off, didn't grow up like I did. I've shared with you before, I grew up in the church. My first Sunday on this earth, I was in the church. And I've been in the church every Sunday since. That's my heritage. But, you know, I think of a man who was a great academic mind and was so very frustrated by the the rising tide of Christianity that he took upon himself a project for his doctoral thesis to disprove Christianity. To prove that being a follower of Jesus Christ is a fraudulent expedition. He made it his life's journey for two years to disprove Christianity. And in the process of doing that, he was converted to Christ. And today is one of, if not the greatest, Christian apologists our world knows. His name is Josh McDowell. You've heard that name. Evidence that demands a verdict. The books are are too numerous to, to rattle off today, but started off to disprove Christianity became one of the greatest apologists for Christianity our world has ever known. I think of a a guy by the name of Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson, for those of you that are a little bit older, you know, was very involved in the Watergate scandal. He went to prison because he was a part of that scandal. And yet it was in prison that he became a Christian. And today he's probably the foremost Christian worldview expert our world has known. Didn't start off playing on the Lord's side. Didn't start off. On the Christian team, shall we say. But he switched sides. And he's been changing the world for Christ ever since. Uh, One of my three favorite preachers of all time. A guy that I actually learned to preach sitting at his feet at Lincoln Christian College. A guy by the name of Chuck Sackett. Didn't start off like I did growing up in, in the first Christian church and was there every Sunday of his life. He grew up in a bar. Literally grew up in a bar. Because his parents owned the bar, he lived upstairs, and it wasn't until he was 16 years old and a high school buddy said, why don't you come to Sunday night church with me? So he got on his motorcycle, cut off shorts, no shirt, no socks, tennis shoes, and showed up at a conservative Christian church. Probably parking in a handicapped spot before there were handicapped spots. And guess what that church did? They didn't rebuke him. They didn't say, son, you're not dressed like we are. Go on home and change your clothes, and then you can come to church. They embraced him. They loved him. They helped send him to Bible college. One of the three greatest preachers that I know. Didn't start off playing on the Christian team, but he switched sides. And he's been making a difference ever since. See this morning the commitment of Saul. There's a second person that is in this narrative that we need to pay attention to, and it's a guy by the name of Ananias. And I want you to see here the courage of this man we know as Ananias. Let's pick up our narrative reading with verse 10. It says, In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Verse 13, Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go! Exclamation point. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings, before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And then Ananias went to the house and entered it. 
placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. And he got up, was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. See the courage of Ananias. We know that Ananias was a human being because Ananias' reaction to this mission that God is sending him on is the same reaction many of us would have. Lord, don't you know who this is? Lord, don't you realize this is the guy that's killing all the Christians? And you want me to go? And you want me to put my life on the line? It's a trap. It's a setup. And yet the Lord said, go. It's part of my master sovereign plan. Two things I want you to see here. Number one, understand Ananias was a disciple of the Lord. Um, when we think disciples, many times we think that there were just 12. You know, we've memorized the list from the Gospels, possibly Peter, James, John, the list goes on. And, you know, we know that Judas took his own life at the end of the Gospels and he was replaced in Acts chapter 1. And the idea is that there was only 12. But understand, throughout the New Testament, there are many, many, many more disciples. And Ananias is one of these disciples. But what I want you to see more than anything else when it comes to Ananias is the fact that he's impressive because he has courage to overcome his fears and carry out God's will. There it is again, God's will. Did you hear it? God's will. He has the courage to overcome his fears and carry out God's will. I'm convinced that you can't do all God wants you to do unless you have courage. Because the Christian life isn't always all peaches and cream. It isn't always all smooth sailing. There are challenges along the way. There can be bumps in the road. And like Ananias, we need to be people of courage. Probably the greatest, I, I was trying to think of examples of this week, and probably my favorite example of this is a football coach um, who is one of my heroes in, in, in this life. Bill McCartney won a national championship for the University of Colorado in the, the early 1990s. He was absolutely on top of the college football world. He had... Other college football teams, uh, universities that wanted to hire him. He had NFL programs that wanted to bring him in. And he had offers to be head coach or to move up and be like president and general manager. He walked away, I think the year was 1995, with three years still remaining on his contract. A contract that would pay him a half a million dollars every year to coach football. Now, he didn't walk away to go to another team, although he could have. He didn't walk away to go become CEO of some big famous corporation. He walked away to found a Christian men's organization you know as Promise Keepers. And when he did that, he was the laughing stock of the sports world. Newspapers all across the country lambasted him. They, they crucified him. How can you do such a crazy thing? They said things like he was committing career suicide. He'd never be back. He'd never be able to get another job for doing such a foolish and stupid thing. And yet, you know what he did? He changed his world for Christ. How many of you have ever been a part of a Promise Keeper activity one way or another? Anybody here? I know several have. Promise Keepers, it may not be a perfect organization. There is no such thing as a perfect organization. It's an organization that's probably done as much as any other organization in the last 20 years to help men reconnect with their God-given commission to love the Lord their God with all their heart, to love their wives, to love their children, to take seriously their call. 
took courage to do that. And you need to be like Ananias. Maybe you need to be like a Bill McCartney in many ways and have courage to do God's will. There's a third characteristic I want us to see this morning. And it is in verses 19 through 25. I'm going to call it the combat of Paul. The combat of Paul. Now I need to tell you, Saul is still referred to as Saul until chapter 13. We'll get to that in a couple weeks. But for our purpose this morning, he's going to be known as Paul from here on out. So I'm referring to him as Paul here. Let's, leave, let's read our text together, beginning with the second part of verse 19. It says, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus, and at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here? to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by, catch this, proving that Jesus is the Christ. And after many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan day and night. They kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. Um, what I love about... Saul, who we will come to know as Paul, he didn't take six years and go to Bible college and seminary before he started proclaiming the good news. What's our text say? Right away. Immediately. Now, where did he go? Catch this on your outline. First of all, Saul begins his ministry in the synagogues, reaching out to, to the Jews. The very people that he had fellowshiped with, the very people that he had conspired to kill the followers of the way, that is Christians, he reaches out to them. What does he say to them? His message is twofold. He says, one, Jesus is the Son of God. And secondly, Jesus is the Christ. I'll have people from time to time come to me and say, Greg, I really want to be an ambassador for Christ. I really want to share my faith. I really want to communicate the good news of Jesus. But, buddy, it's a big Bible. There's 66 books there. There's a lot of verses. And, and I just, I don't even know where to start. Can I give you a good place to start? If you have someone in your life that is living outside the grace of God, someone in your life that's not a follower of Jesus Christ, not a follower of a way, that's a great place to start. Just sharing with them that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that you believe, as we sang right before communion, that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Christ, He's the Savior, that's a great place to start. And that's Saul's message right here. Jesus is the Son of God, and Jesus is the Christ. Understand the reaction wasn't all wonderful. What's the reaction? Saul's met with skepticism. Saul, uh, the people listening, are baffled. And these people that were with Saul wanting to kill Christians have now turned the tables on him, and they want to kill him. He's really switched sides. He's went from killing and persecuting Christians to now he is target number one. He's the person they want to kill and they want to persecute. You know, so many different examples I could share of modern-day Pauls, individuals who are so passionate about winning the lost, about doing whatever it takes. Um, there's a guy who is a trustee at Lincoln Christian College. His name is Dr. Dwayne Illman. And um, just an amazing, amazing guy. He's a medical doctor, lives in Bloomington, Indiana. He and a buddy of his started Bible Bowl. And I don't know if this church has ever done Bible Bowl in the past or not, but Bible Bowl is a nationwide organization. He, as a Bible college student, started Bible Bowl. 
This guy, when he graduated, obviously went to medical school and, and was able to start working as a doctor. And he did just a ridiculous thing in the eyes of many of the people that he went to medical school with. He started spending nine months of every year in Africa, a place that used to be known as Zaire, part of a medical missionary team. And they would come home every year for three, work, three months, and they would work in the Bloomington, Indiana Hospital to earn enough money to be able to go back for nine months. And they did that for years. Um, I know his, his oldest two children were raised in Zaire for many of their formative ages. And finally, the violence became so intense, they all had to leave and they couldn't do it anymore. But I remember him sharing a devotion at a faculty staff retreat and saying, I did it because I wanted to use medicine to share the good news of Jesus Christ. This is a guy that God has blessed incredibly. But he gave up the opportunity to earn a lot of money for many, many years because he wanted to be Christ's ambassador. Uh, my friend Brooke Brotsman, some of you have met Brooke before. He, he was a very successful uh, individual in whatever he did. Great soccer coach. He recruited for Lincoln Christian College. Great minister. Gave it all up to found a mission organization where they minister in places like the Dominican Republic and Haiti and Poland. Uh, he's even been to Cuba. You're not, you're not even allowed to go to Cuba. And he's sending Christians to Cuba to minister in the name of the Lord because he wants to see more and more people come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. See the combat of Paul. Well, we've looked at the commitment of Saul. We've looked at the courage of Ananias, the, the combat of, of Paul. Fourth uh, characteristic I want you to see today, see the compassion of a man by the name of Barnabas. Let's finish reading our text. Look at verse 26. And when Saul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed there with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. And when the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. See the compassion of this man named Barnabas. You know, it, it's not a surprise in my mind at all that Saul, who will become known as Paul, is met with great skepticism. That's the first thing on your, your outline that you need to write down. When Saul comes to Jerusalem, he's greeted with great skepticism. People are not buying his act at all. And can I just tell you that more than likely, if this narrative unfolded in 2009, I'm not sure we'd buy his act, would we? I mean, if we heard that this person had been murdering Christians and he wanted to come hang out with us here at this beautiful sanctuary, First Christian Church, I think we might be calling security. I think we might be saying, we need some help. There's a dangerous person in the house. We, we wouldn't like it either. But here, here's what played out. Here's the reason that this worked. Barnabas reacts differently to Saul, and here's the reason why. He's using kingdom lenses. He's got a kingdom mindset. He knows that it's God's will that he reach out to Saul. There it is again, the whole idea of God's will. Secondly, on your outline, Barnabas reacts differently to Saul because he used 
kingdom lenses. And then third on your outline, you know this more than likely, Barnabas by definition means son of encouragement. That's the definition of the word Barnabas, son of encouragement. You know, God has placed in my life some great Barnabases. He really has. One of my best friends in this world is a guy by the name of Jeff Mayfield. Some of you know him. And he is a great Barnabas in my life. He's the only Cardinal fan I know that doesn't just drive that knife. And I, I, it's just wonderful. I don't know what happened when I went to camp. We were a game out, and now we're four and a half out. I don't know. Special prayer service later. Another story for another time. Uh, when I was in Moequa, one of my elders, just a, a basic guy, he works at a motor rewinding shop in Decatur, Illinois. One of the greatest encouragers I know of, a guy by the name of Gary Simmons, always has an encouraging word. I still hear from him. He's just an encourager. There are too many people in the name here at First Christian Church, but one person that is a constant encourager to me is a guy you know as Tim Winthy. Always has an encouraging word. Always lifting me up. And sometimes the phone calls or the emails that I receive are truly at the most opportune time. Can I say this? I said it's a first service, and I, I had some weird looks when I said it, but... You know, when we think of the great heroes of the New Testament, we think of people like Peter, John, we think of Paul, we think of James, the brother of Jesus, a lot of people, Mary, the mother of Jesus. I mean, the list goes on. And on. You know, I almost never hear shared in that list is Barnabas. Rarely do I hear somebody say Barnabas. But, you know, Barnabas had two characteristics that I absolutely love. Number one, he was generous in a way that really no one else in the New Testament was generous. Remember what he did two weeks ago as we studied the end of chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 5? He sold the field. He brought the money. He put it at the apostles' feet. And they met the needs of anyone that had a need. Incredibly generous. And secondly, a great encourager. Can I say this? What, what I think we need as a church, as much as anything else, is we need more Barnabases. We need more people that see the good instead of the bad. That have a word of encouragement instead of a word of discouragement. It's really countercultural in many ways. You know, when you turn on the news at night, they shouldn't call it the news. You know what they should call it? They should call it the bad news because that's all that's ever reported. It's a breakthrough when one TV station has to have a good news segment once a week just to sprinkle some good news in there. And what I'm convinced we need, what I'm convinced every church needs as much as anything else is people that will say, I'm going to be a Barnabas. I'm going to be an encourager. I'm going to lift people up when they need it the most. I'm going to lift people up when they least expect it. Barnabas, every bit as much as Paul and Peter and John and the other apostles and disciples changed his world for Christ because he was generous and because he had the gift of encouragement. Here's my bottom line for you today. Catch this bottom line right here. Many people think Acts 9 is an accident. I don't believe that at all. I believe it's a strategic part of God's sovereign plan to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. And so I go back to my opening question that I started the service with today. What's God calling you to do? What's God's will for your life? Where do you need to be courageous? Where do you need to strengthen that commitment? Where do you need to have that, that encouragement, that compassion? What is God calling you to do to make a difference in the world in which you live? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. 
and we thank you for the chance to study your word. And I just, I love Acts 9. I love this narrative. I love the boldness that, that Paul embraces in the way that he changed your world. And Father, just help us to be like Ananias and to be like Barnabas and to be like the, the changed Paul. Help us to look for opportunities to be that beacon of light. We love you so much, Father, and we thank you most of all for Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray right now. Amen.